0: Oh, so you like listening to podcasts, huh? Well, so do a lot of people. As a matter of fact, millions of listeners are tuning into podcasts every week, and your next customer could be one of them. Did you know that podcast advertising is one of the most effective ways to advertise your product or service? And it's really easy to get started. Just go to podbean.com slash brands. That's podbea dot com slash brands to start boosting your business with podcast advertising today.
1: Welcome to Creative Income, a podcast that focuses on making a living in the creative space. Whether you're an actor, filmmaker, musician, painter, or anything that doesn't fit the nine to five mold, there is value for you here. I'm Lars Lindström. Let's get into it. Welcome everybody to Creative Income. I'm your host Lars Lindström. Thank you so much for being here. We've got a really great episode this week. Uh, Jay Holman is a titan of the film industry. Um, he has. Been a cinematographer, an author for American Cinematographer magazine. Uh, he's been a director, a producer, uh, an electrician. <laughs> I mean, he's done enormous amounts in the film industry, and I'm very excited to have him on the podcast. I've always known him as a technician uh, and just kind of a cinematography genius. He's he wrote um, the cinematographer lens manual, uh, which is an extensive like 837 page volume on every cinema lens, their characteristics, their builds, but he has a, a new book out on his website, com. if you want to check it out, um, it's called Shotcraft, it's uh, basically a collection of um, a lot of different articles that he wrote for American Cinematographer Magazine, uh, I'm excited to purchase it, and check it out, give it a read, um, anyway, uh, how's everybody doing, are you doing okay, the film industry is really interesting right now, I know a lot of you aren't in the film industry, and that's great too, but um, man, we are it's it's we're still on strike. I know that the uh, the writers guild have been able to kind of figure out their resolve and got what they're looking for, and I'm happy for them. Um, it's hard to make movies without actors though, and uh, SAG after still still doing their thing. It, it looks like um, that's gonna happen for a little bit longer. So um, man, if you got some music videos you need help with or some uh, spec projects, hit me up. I've got a lot of equipment and a lot of idle hands and time right now, and uh, looking for looking for some fun creative projects um anyway uh enjoy the episode guys we'll uh we'll recap at the end hey jay thank you so much for being on the podcast i really appreciate your time absolutely
0: it's a pleasure to be here
1: yeah let's uh let's go ahead and jump in tell the audience what you do primarily i know it's quite a few things right so it's according to your uh, instagram page you're a producer director and a recovering cinematographer which i loved <laughs> I, I very much related to um no i'm not recovering i'm very much a cinematographer but uh just uh, what do you do where do you come from how did you get started
0: Oh, good God, uh, just yeah. throw it me your right Your entire
1: life, your entire life story,
0: yeah. <laughs> great, great. Well, I was born in Chicago. To, uh, okay. Um, I did, yes, primarily I am a director and producer, um, and I call myself a recovering cinematographer. Uh, I was a director of photography for about 10 years. I retired officially in 2008. I hung up my meter, uh, but I can't get away from it. I can't stay yeah. away from it, continue. I'm a technical editor for American Cinematographer Magazine. Uh, I just published my fourth book on cinematography. It just came out yesterday. Um, What's the book? uh, It's Shotcraft. It is a compilation of the first five years of my column for American Cinematographer. So it's an educational column, uh, kind of a Cinematography 101.
1: Fantastic. Congratulations. I actually didn't know about it. It's perfect timing that you're on the podcast then.
0: Right. Exactly. I thought you were just on my promotional circuit, I guess. Yeah, uh, there
1: you go. Yeah. (laughs)
0: We snuck you in somehow. Exactly, uh, but yeah, I guess at my heart, I'm I'm a filmmaker. But uh, over mm. the 30 years of doing it, I have I've literally done every job in production and post, uh, with the exception of hair and makeup, stunts, uh, catering, and music composing.
1: Well, wow. was it something you always knew you wanted to do from a young age, or is it something that you kind of gradually fell into?
0: Absolutely, I saw Star Wars at five years old, and I walked out and told my parents I was going to direct movies.
1: Yeah. Amazing. And my- so what was the path like? Did you go to school or did you just start finding your way on the sets?
0: Well, the, the early part of the path, you know, from uh, five years old to uh, you know, end of my teenage years, I was fumbling and trying to make movies on my own. I discovered mm-hmm. my mother's eight millimeter camera at about seven years old and started shooting eight millimeter movies. Uh, and then uh, one of my sisters gave me a Betamax camera uh, in junior high. And so I started making movies on video and doing my own, you know, video editing and whatnot. And then I actually started doing that professionally during high school, nice. uh, shooting video projects. And I was working as an actor, working in the theater. What and, are the video projects? I, you say professionally, does that mean you're getting
1: paid on these projects? And no. if so where, was it around town? Was it commercial? Was it What would it
0: look like? It's all small stuff around town. And it actually, strangely enough, started with, the first video yearbook for my high school. Okay. So, the first year that they put that together, it was done by a big company called Justin's, and I was the one at the high school who got the responsibility to put it together. And the second year, uh, I took it on solo and did it with my own company. Um, nice. And produced two more years of video yearbooks for the high school. Um, just you know, discovering as you go, and, and truly. Horrible, you know, video to video kind of uh, editing. I'm sure. Part. I'm sure. Well, what were you getting paid for these things?
1: Was it like ten bucks an hour? I'm just like, what were you getting paid, and how did you even know what to charge?
0: When I took it on uh, myself, I just uh, took the uh, proceeds of the sales. So we okay. sold the copies of the video. I think at twenty bucks a copy, um, mm-hmm. and as many that sold or what I brought in profit wise. So they do you, remember, do
1: you have any do you have any recollection of, of what those numbers look
0: like or was it uh, I don't I have the accounting books stuffed <laughs> away in <laughs> do you
1: really <laughs> from high school I no. might be here but no
0: it is is I'm a pack rat I keep everything so it's Great. stuffed away in storage cool. but no I have nice. I have no idea
1: all right so so you're in high school you're kind of finishing that up uh, at what point did you start to do a little bit more traditional filmmaking work or did it start more commercial and then, and then morph into narrative.
0: Uh, Doing traditional filmmaking work on my own uh, started late high school and early junior college. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm actually a junior college dropout, so I went to (laughs) a community college in Arizona, the only school at the time that had a production program, Yeah, uh, and wound up leaving the school after two and a half years in frustration, mostly because I was working outside of the school and I was being penalized for working. Exactly. Uh, which is super frustrating. I, yeah. Most of my work in Arizona was done in theater. Uh, and I, I ran, uh, I was a technical director for a theater. And then I worked uh, as a theatrical technician being a, a master flyman and a master electrician and a lighting designer and, and doing all this work. And I got a little bit of film work in Arizona, uh, but it was pretty small. Some of that was working for a couple of the big commercial companies. No. Some of that was uh, independent films. Um, and then when I moved to Los Angeles, I came back to Arizona and I shot two other independent movies there uh, early on. As a, but, as a cinematographer? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Isn't that funny how that works?
0: It's like, you yeah, got, you got to move to
1: Los Angeles to then move back to Arizona to shoot your shoot your films. Of course, because
0: then you're a Hollywood guy, right? That's right. You're, you're key. You're not a local yeah. guy.
1: Yeah, yeah, I've I've noticed that too. It's just, I'm in Los Angeles as well as a cinematographer, and and um, you know I've thought like, oh yeah, be nice. Maybe maybe we should move. Maybe we should. You know, it's like I do a lot of films up in uh, Salt Lake City, and uh, anytime I'm up there, the crew's incredible. The environment's amazing, and I talk to people there, and they're going, "Well, you're a key. I'm like if you if you're a crew member, yeah, you'd be great. But uh, as a key, it's hard. It's hard to to make a living out of out of Los Angeles. So
0: yeah, it's yeah. still you know it's the heart of filmmaking in the world really is in yeah. LA, even Absolutely. though most of it does farm out. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything's based here. The keys come from Los Angeles. Yeah. Yeah.
1: What were those films, those first films you went back to Arizona to shoot?
0: Oh, I don't, I don't even know if I want oh, to. <laughs> so they were two, uh, just a, a, atrocious uh, independent films. Yeah. Uh, one uh quite, Unironically, uh, was called the best movie ever made, and it, it was <laughs> the worst thing I'd ever worked on. Um, but but uh, it was an extension. Uh, as an actor, I, I got involved in a, um, a sketch comedy television show, uh, and the feature was an extension of that. So it was a sketch comedy feature. Okay. Um, but um, just yeah, just truly awful. <laughs>
1: and then Do you remember we- how you? What was the hiring process like? Uh, did you know the director? Yeah. How, how did you? How did that conversation go? And then uh, how did you get the job?
0: So because I was an actor on the television series uh, and started to do a little bit of directing on that show, uh, the two writers, directors, and producers of that TV series, of that sketch comedy show called TV or Not TV, uh, went on to do this feature. So they knew me. We already had a relationship. They knew that I was doing shooting on the outside and I was doing a lot of lighting on the outside. So it was... Just kind of a natural thing that uh, Chris, the director, writer, producer of that, came to me and said, will you shoot this film? I was like, hell yeah, let's do it. It'll be great. Did you have um, any kind of
1: – I mean, you're, you're you're acting, you're producing, you're directing, you're shooting. Was there any one particular job that you just absolutely loved more than the others? Um, Direct. What's that? Yeah, directing. absolutely. Yeah,
0: directing. That's so what, at
1: what point were you able to – start moving into that, uh, into that direction?
0: Well, it, okay. So the, the evolution of that was at about nine or 10 years old, making these eight millimeter movies, hmm. I realized to be a good director, I needed to understand what every other job was. Hmm. So at that point, I made a decision to, to set the path of my career to learn every job. And I actually started as a professional actor. And then went behind the scenes um, doing writing, carpentry. I mean, everything in theater and then moving and doing the same thing in film, working my way up uh, and trying every job at least once professionally, meaning I got paid to do that job. So I had to, you know, earn my place to have somebody hire me to do it. Within that, Uh, being an actor was a lot of fun. I loved that, but I knew that that was not really a career path for me. I didn't want to live the life of an actor. It's atrocious. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was always directing and I was always going towards being a good director and being the best director that I could. I fell in love and found a second passion in cinematography. So that became the second nearest and dearest part of my love for this industry. And it's, it's all visual storytelling. Right. That's hundred yeah, We do That's the medium. Absolutely. Uh, and as a director, I have a lot of say over what happens with the camera, but you know, as a cinematographer, I built a language and an understanding and a, and a fundamentals of how to tell stories and how to interpret what's in my head visually. So the real answer to your question was, it took me until 2008, mm-hmm. uh, which is oh, God. I don't even know how old I was in 2008. Uh, <laughs> took me to that point in, in my life uh, to finally get to a point where I said, okay, I'm ready to direct. And exactly. At that point I had a documentary feature that was funded that I was doing. I had a number of award winning shorts. I had a feature script that had some interest and I was like, yeah, right now, this is the time hung up my meter. I'm done directing. And then all of those projects fell apart. Um, uh, and it's been um, <laughs> it's been a, a long struggle.
1: Yeah. Now I know I, I I know you very much in the industry as as someone that's very technical. Um. And I, I, I you wrote the the cine lens uh handbook. Is that correct? Uh. Co-wrote it with uh, Chris Chris. Rost. Yeah. yeah. What was it? What say it again? The cine lens manual. The cine lens manual, yes, and it's—I mean, I mean, how many pages is this book? It's absolutely massive. <laughs> so, I mean, where does that come from? Like, where does that passion, that desire, that drive, that like, where does that come from? And then, talk to me about—was um, it just a passion project for you, or is it something that's been able to to help kind of? maybe pay for some of these, these feast or famine mentality years where it's just like maybe we're not shooting as much or directing as much. We have these books, and that's a, a good source of residual income. What was the drive behind writing these books?
0: So that kind of – I'm trying to figure out how to make that a short story, right? It doesn't uh, have
1: to be. I mean, it, it just uh, – you know, whatever whatever comes to mind.
0: The, the longer aspect of that is that I, I kind of realized early on – in order to, to know that, you know, a subject teaching it to somebody else was the best way to really learn it.
1: Yeah. Yes.
0: And I started teaching as kind of, uh, an extension of directing, right. Sort of communicating to other people. And I started as a student teacher in high school. And then once I graduated high school, I actually designed a program, uh, that I was hired the next year to teach, uh, teaching the theater students, uh, how to be professional theater technicians. Mm-hmm. And that was an incredibly successful program. So I've always had this educational aspect where I'm doing workshops, I'm teaching. Um, and I, I actually talk about this in the intro to the new book. In 1997, I got fired off of a job that I was producing and shooting. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, it was incredibly traumatic. It was actually yeah. the same Director, writer, producer of the two other features. Um, And I was pissed. I'm pissed. I'm depressed. And at the time, I'm spending a lot of time on my computer. And so I was gathering all of this software to do cinematography and learn more and use my computer at the same time. And I pitched that as a story to American Cinematographer Magazine.
1: Hmm.
0: And they loved it. And so my first article with American Cinematographer was in April of 1997. And they just kept pitching, sending me more things to write. So for 27 years now, I've been writing for American Cinematographer. And it became this side gig. I never planned it. I never thought about it. And that spun off through one of the editors there who moved over to another publication called Digital Video, uh, asked me to write a column for them, which then spun off to a publisher coming to me asking me to write a book. And that was my first book, A Shot in the Dark. Hmm. Uh, And about that point, you know, there's imposter syndrome. Like I understand the tech. I'm really good at it. I do a lot of research. I'm a voracious reader. I mean, you can see a little bit of the bookshelves behind me, but there's there's 60 linear feet of bookshelves (laughs) in my home. (laughs) Uh, And that's that's my education. Yeah. I I dropped out of school and I I taught myself how to learn and I learned by reading. So I love passing that along. Um, uh-huh. and the writing has been an extension of that. My column for digital video became my second book, compilation mm. of that. And there was a moment uh, with Chris and I where we were you know, cinematographers for God, more than a decade each, and we were humbled into learning that we knew nothing about lenses. Yeah. And it spun me off into wanting to learn more and to teach about it for a school I was teaching at that time for Vilmos Zygmunt's school. Hmm. And so I pushed them to introduce optics into that. So I learned more so that I could teach it. And I was ridiculously frustrated by the lack of information and the amount of misinformation. Hmm. And I naively thought, hey, I've done two books. I could do a third. I think this is my third, <laughs> right? Why not? Uh I asked Chris, I'm like, do you want to do this with me? And he's like, sure, why not? Yeah, let's do it.
1: Did he have any idea before shrugging his shoulders and saying, sure, why not? What he was getting himself into? No. Did you have any idea what you were getting yourselves into?
0: (laughs) Absolutely not. And as a matter of fact, when I, the day that we, that I pitched it to him, I sent him an outline that I'd written and we bounced this outline back and forth about six times that day, each adding, you know, new stuff and, kind of one upping the the other, which is what we do. And I said to him, you know, this should probably be about a year or two to put this together. That's what, you know, it took my, my last ones. Uh-huh. He was like, yeah, okay. And it took us eight. Eight years. It was Eight years. And that's not like, oh, we take six months off and we're not doing, no, that was, that was eight years damn near full-time work while still having, careers on the outside of it. So, we, so I guess that's my question. Yeah. So, so you're writing this book for eight years. How are
1: you surviving financially during all that time? Are you just continuing to work? And then is there is there enough of a payoff for that eight years amount of work uh, for when the book finally does come out?
0: Quite luckily with this particular book, uh, yes. It, it's, um, it's been incredibly successful. Yeah, uh, it's been really very well adopted and very warmly received, which is gratifying and relieving and uh, a bit humbling all at the same time. Uh-huh. You know, there there was absolutely a terror when we released it that there was going to be nothing but crickets. Uh-huh. You know, that the industry would go meh, uh, and luckily that's not what happened. So, not at all with the previous yeah. two books. Which both went through traditional commercial publishers. Uh-huh. You know the the royalties are so ridiculously small. Hmm. Uh, it, it's it can't even really be counted as an ancillary income. You know you're you're talking about making uh, anywhere between a dollar eighty five and three dollars per book sold. Yikes! Uh, and ninety percent of books, all books published, never sell more than a thousand copies. Wow. So I've been really fortunate that all of my books have broken that that bare threshold. That's like the minimum. But yeah. we made the decision on the lens book to self-publish. Okay. And we did that for a number of reasons. First of all, the, the biggest commercial publisher who did my second book, we were in talks with them for months, and really it was just too big. They were afraid of it, they didn't want to put it out. You know, once once a book weighs too much, <laughs> too expensive to ship. To ship, right? too few of them that arrive in a box uh, they take up less or more room on a shelf if they're going there there's all of these stipulations that fall into it uh, and they wanted us to do it at about a third of its size Oof. and we just said no no compromise Yeah. so we wanted putting it out ourselves which meant that we got a better chunk of- how, how does what does that look like how did you know what to do
1: who did you talk to to figure out how to self publish this book
0: Luckily, because I had been in the publishing world for so many years with the magazine. Um, Mm. and again, by doing, you know, having my own production company and doing every job, uh, I had an offshoot for a while working as a graphic designer. So I understood Mm. layout. I understood software. I understood printing requirements, you know, bleed and slug and, uh, CMYK colors and, and all of these things that you need to understand when you go into the, the printing world. So I had a foundation for all of this. Um, and unfortunately in our partnership, most of that work fell to me because Chris had no foundation in that, yeah. even though he'd been working the publication uh, world too. So it, it, it was a challenge and it was, it was an incredibly difficult year to put that final year to put that book together. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife will attest. There was a lot of um, uh, screaming and crying and, and throwing things and, um, All from you. I'm a. a Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Of course. Oh, completely. (laughs) Uh, And ripping my hair out, and uh, so it was a massive struggle. But we knew it was the only way that we can control it. And the side effect to that was we didn't have to have a traditional publisher taking their massive cut from it. So it Mm. it was a much more lucrative um, financial investment.
1: So, what did you learn? I, I mean, obviously, a tremendous amount about lenses, but uh, what was what was your, the big takeaway for you um, from from writing
0: that book from that eight year journey? Oh Lord, um, the biggest thing that I wanted to do was you know that revelation, the the humbling revelation for Chris and I, uh, with uh, a lens expert from Panavision who just melted our brains and taught us that we knew nothing. We wound up taking that information and doing a couple of massive lens tests. And then I took the results of that still frames from all of them and I put them in, laid them out next to each other. And Chris called it the Denny's menu because it became what he like, okay, this is the flavor I want for my next job. So I want K35s because I want this Mm. look, right? Yeah. So he went off and started buying lenses and rehousing lenses and finding vintage lenses and just going crazy. Yeah. Nice. And I went nuts because I wanted to understand why they were different. Hmm. I wanted to know what made a Primo different from a Cookspeed Pancro. Why? And so the biggest takeaway for me was being able to share that why with other cinematographers like yourself and empower you to understand the physics of optics to make better choices creatively wow. that was my biggest takeaway and i'm I'm super proud of of that
1: yeah no, that's incredible you 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 mentioned you briefed on um, um, imposter syndrome and <laughs> I, and this this is something that I deal with man I think everybody deal, everybody in the creative industry deals with it doesn't matter what we're doing or or how what we have done or what we've got coming up. Uh, I deal with imposter syndrome all the time, and you know it's like, and I and I I'll show up uh, day one of set sometimes, and I'll see all the honey wagons lined up, and and I'll start to see you know gear coming off the trucks, and I'm just going, I don't, I don't belong here. <laughs> like, what have I done? You know, can you talk to me about what you've done in, in your career to to kind of handle that imposter syndrome, or, or is there anything, any advice you have for creatives that deal with it on a daily basis?
0: You know, I, I, it used to be something that terrified me
1: mm-hmm.
0: and, and it's so true that we face that every job we face it, everything that we do. And, and I think that what I've come to realize is that it's actually part of the creative process. It's Ooh. part of the creative process to want to be better than you are and to question yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. Do you think I, it's necessary I, then? I I think it is. And and what finally made that settle for me was watching an interview with Steven Spielberg, who is like the, you know, the filmmaker that I've modeled myself after the most and and the one that I admire the most. Uh, And watching Steven talk about every film he makes day one, he feels like he has no idea what he's doing and he's going to be found out. And once I heard that, it was like, oh, wait a minute. We all feel this. Yeah, It's part of the process. And I think that when you become too confident and too complacent and too set in your ways, then that's the time to retire. Because then you're not pushing yourself and you're not challenging yourself. Yeah. So I think the fear is is important and the imposter syndrome is kind of important. Mm -hmm. And I kind of just, I just had this conversation the other day when it came to lenses Uh, because I've... I've become a recognized expert in this field, and I feel total imposter syndrome because nine years ago I, I knew nothing. Right, so I just studied really, really hard. I read everything uh, that I possibly could and learned as much as I could. And then, you know, now I regurgitated what I learned. So it's, it doesn't feel like I earned it. I'm not an optical designer. I don't. I'm not a doctorate in in optics. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really. Uh, no physics beyond what I've learned for this. But at the same time, anyone who comes up and asks me a question now about lenses or optics, I have the answer. Yeah. So I have this deep imposter syndrome, but at the, st- at the same time I'm kind of constantly validating myself. Like, okay, no, I, I actually do know what I'm talking about.
1: Yeah. It's it's similar to me on set, right? Where it's just like yeah. I all these honey wagons line up, all the gear starts coming off the truck and we roll on that first shot. And I look at the the monitor and I go, this looks great. (laughs) I love this. I love, I, I, it it turns out I know what I'm doing. turns out I know what I'm talking about. And, and it, and it it quickly does go away, but I, and I think you're right, right? Where it's like, for me, the the moment I stop worrying about stuff, I'm dead, I'm dead inside, you know? And it's just like, and I've, and I've, and I should just retire because that's exactly right. Like,
0: (laughs) I remember many years ago having this conversation with a cinematographer and I was still coming up. I was just starting to gaff at the time. And he had this incredibly long resume. I mean, it's like 300 films that he'd shot. Just Ooh. crazy. Yeah. And we had this conversation about, yeah, you know, for me, every every day that I show up, it's about the best. It's about how do I push myself? How do I be the best? And he gave me this blank stare. Like, "What? Well, I don't understand why. Just come in and do the job. And I, I <laughs> My mind like exploded and melted. I was like, what the hell are you talking about? And then I looked at his work and honestly, it was all trash. Oh, done all of these ridiculously low budget things and just didn't care. He just showed up. He threw a couple of lights up and he shot it and it broke my heart. Mm, Interesting. Realized that's not who I want to be.
1: So what are you doing? What are you, what are you working on to uh, to to fulfill that need, fulfill that uh, that constant desire of being the best that you can be?
0: See, that that's a bigger question too. <laughs> uh, well, you know, right now, still uh, in the midst of our strikes, yeah, um, tricky time. It's yeah. a very tricky time, uh, and I had a feature script that was just starting to be packaged um, at the end of last year. You know, we kind of. We're slow for the holidays. We knew the strikes were potentially happening and everything was on hold. So, yeah. you know, it, it sort of feels like a big part of life is just on pause right now. Absolutely. Yeah,
1: it's, it's an, an interesting year. And I and I definitely want to talk about that too, where it's just like, like the last two years, 21 and 22 for me were gangbusters. I mean, I was just like oh, wow. nonstop. There was commercial projects. There was narrative projects. I mean, I was busy all the time. I had rentals going out the door left and right. And, and this year's been really difficult, and and I and I do feel it's like I, I had this realize I was talking to my my uh, spouse this morning, my wife this morning about it, that it's like I have a podcast called Creative Income with Lars Lindstrom, and I'm starting to feel like this imposter syndrome uh, of uh, like like I'm I'm nervous. I'm nervous about work this year, and I haven't been since I started doing this uh, professionally. And this is, this is the first year where it's just been, you know, this thing. And I and I realize that the podcast is not about me at all. It's about conversations like this, uh, where we get to just talk about good things and bad things, feast and famine, and and figuring out how to weather those storms. So, what have you been able to do um, throughout your career to weather some of the feast and famines that have that have come up?
0: I've been very lucky to have the writing and the teaching as an ancillary. Mm-hmm. Um, between the work with a magazine, uh, between the work with a couple other uh, publications, the Hollywood Reporter, digital video, government video, TV technology, You know, a couple other publications that I've written for, uh, I've sort of got a little bit of a base level to supplement production. Because there is feast and famine. Right. I mean, I my first year when I moved to L.A., uh, I because I was working in theater so much in Arizona and I primarily was working as a master electrician and lighting designer. I thought the most natural entry into Hollywood was as an electrician. Hmm. And I'm dating myself a bit, but uh, (laughs) pre Internet days or early Internet days of America online. There was a, a chat room called Hollywood Tonight, not as salacious as it sounds, <laughs> uh, with some truly extraordinary people. It's where I met uh, Russell Carpenter and wow. Wagner and, and Steve Poster and hmm. um, Wes Craven. And wow. I mean, just an incredible amount of people who were in this chat room pretty much on a daily basis. And thanks to that, the first day that I moved to L.A., I had a job. Because of this chat room. And it, that first year, I worked nonstop. Like just crazy. It was amazing. Like, okay, this is this is easy. <laughs> totally. This is totally like, man, I don't know what people are talking about. This is totally easy. Year two, I worked like 70 days out of the year. Hmm. And that was at like $50 and $100 a day. What changed between year one and year two? I'm not entirely sure. You know, some of Mm -hmm. those, uh, the gaffers that I was working with either got constant gigs or they moved on to shooting. Um, but it just seemed like everything dried up. Yeah. And mostly what I was getting was like really, really low budget day player gigs. Mm -hmm. And I hit a a massive low. I mean, almost evicted from my apartment, literally stealing toilet paper from a, a fast food restaurant. Oh, wow. Uh, so the, when you talk about feast or famine, I, I hit them both in the first two years. Like, this is easy. <laughs> and then, Jesus Christ, I'm, I'm going to lose my home. Um, hmm. I've been extraordinarily fortunate for my whole career to just make a living in this business. Uh, and a huge, huge part of that is the support of... My long term girlfriend, who became my wife, who has been a backbone for me and really helped me through those times of feast and famine, that we were an incredible uh, partnership. And I'm not sure without that that I would have truly survived. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that I would have been, you know, probably moving back to Arizona and going back to working in theater again. The magazine, uh, that support, and then just hustling. You know, hustling. And, and I found that pretty much my whole life, my biggest opportunities were ones that I made for myself. Hmm. It was very, very little ever offered to me or handed to me Uh and even you know, I, I've talked about this a, a number of times. The way that I made the switch from gaffing to cinematography, because nobody was giving me a chance to shoot. i shooting on the sides. Nobody was doing it. I wound up producing more, so that I could produce projects that you could then shoot. And I could shoot. <laughs> and I wound up producing my own reel, because that's how I. Okay, yeah, you've got a short you want to do. I'll produce it. I'll make it happen. I'll bring you all the gear. I'll bring you all the crew. We'll put it all together. I want to shoot it. Interesting. Hell yeah. Uh, so I produced myself into shooting.
1: Into shooting.
0: <laughs> and it's almost every step of the way, it's been having to generate my own opportunities. Yeah. It's a hell of a lot harder when you get to directing.
1: Yeah. Talk to me about that. So what's, uh, what's that look like um, to create your own opportunities for directing?
0: Uh, it's, <laughs> I wish I had a good answer for it. <laughs> Me too, <laughs> like man. There's a lot of <laughs> listeners that also wish you had a good answer. I feel like every, every time it's a massive struggle. It's, it's really, uh-huh. I would love to say it's about the right material, right? You get that right material and everybody wants it. But even that's not true. The The truth is it's about finding, the right source of financing to believe in what you want to do. Uh, And that has been rare for me. I'm a terrible financing producer. Yeah. Uh, But the opportunities have come when I've found those entities who are willing to put uh, put the money on the line and, and, and invest in that. Unfortunately, our industry has changed so much in the last few years to make this so much harder. Um, I I was a partner in a distribution company um, and in another production company. And at that time, we were putting out DVDs of independent films. And you could could make a sale to Blockbuster, Hmm. a single sale that would recoup about half of the budget of an independent film. And then there were a couple other uh, video outlets and then we had a couple other amazing contracts with the the U.S. military uh, that would – we could recoup the funding of an independent film. With relatively low risk. Yeah. Yeah. Then DVDs die. Yeah. And when you have independent films, the big streamers are atrocious to you. Yeah. Uh, The deals that Netflix makes, you know, they'll – They'll do a thirty thousand dollar three year contract. Oh, exclusive or or can you still sell it, it internationally? Can be exclusive, but most of them they just don't care. They're just like, yeah, you. We'll put you on the platform, but it's it's three years for us to have the license, and it's thirty grand. Yeah. Um, I have a, a feature on Amazon right now that every time somebody watches it, uh, we get paid six cents. Oh, my gosh. Can
1: you imagine
0: a 6 No, century? I can imagine because I see yeah. the
1: numbers. I see it's the insane. numbers.
0: It's ridiculous. Oh, We're man. talking literally millions of views, and the film, it's a tiny micro-budget film, has not recouped. Yeah, with millions of views. Because that cut is just stupid. Mm-hmm. So how does an investor recoup their money today? I don't have a good answer for that. It's incredibly, incredibly frustrating. Um, yeah. and like I said, I have a feature that's just starting to get packaged, uh, and it's it's a huge struggle. It's an expensive film. Um, it's a challenging film, and I have all the faith in, in it creatively. I, I've been I, it's a passion project for me, but will we find the home for it? I have no idea.
1: So in the meantime, you've just come out with your fourth book.
0: Yes. Thanks for bringing it back. Yeah,
1: yeah no. I, are, do we have you have high hopes for it? Are you excited? Are you, did you self publish it as well? I did.
0: Yeah. Okay, absolutely. I, I I will never go back. Yeah. Um, you know, it it was a very interesting experience with my first two books. To be one with a, was a small commercial publisher, and then the second book was was the biggest that we have in our business, uh, Focal Press. Yeah. Uh, and my experiences with both were uh, mixed. Hmm. Um, I'm a guy who I'm a director. I like to control
1: things
0: (laughs) and there's a a significant lack of control in the publishing world. Um, and then just really very little support in today's publishing. They put the book out, they throw it out in a catalog and then they move on to the next one. Yeah. Uh, so that's
1: exactly what you're saying though, about creating your own. You know, it's in in the in the filmmaking world too. It's just like you create your own opportunities, and you kind of have to do the same with the books. It sounds like,
0: yeah, completely. Yeah. Uh, so I put it together. I mean, I I now have a publishing imprint. Now I've got two titles out from Attic and Press. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> Remind me the name of the of the new book. The uh, American cinematographer's shotcraft.
1: Okay, give me a, a brief description of it because I I, I want to check it out. I want to get it.
0: So, for since 2017, I've been writing a column, a monthly column for American Cinematographer Magazine called Shotcraft.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: that is, uh, of fundamentals, uh, tips and techniques, lessons, uh, deep dives into what we take for granted. So, polarizing filters. So, I'll take a subject like polarizers, which we use every day. Right. And I'll go way in depth into. <laughs> how a polarizer is made, how the it magic. works physically, <laughs> uh, yeah. different techniques of how to use it, where it falls mm-hmm. in, uh, diopters, uh, talk about lenses, go go figure. Yeah. Uh, but it also goes into things like talking about uh, travel carnets and what to do uh, during downtimes between jobs and just general tips and advice in filmmaking. And of course, a massive chapter on lighting. So the book is a compilation of five years of these columns. Hmm. About- did you do
1: an audio an audiobook as well, or just the, just the, the printed copy?
0: I just did the printed copy. There's no digital, and it's just the printed copy right now. It just came out yesterday. Uh, I, crazy enough, so many people have asked for an audio version of the lens book, which just but it's yeah. all visual you have to you see you need 100. to see it yeah <laughs> 1,500 pictures and you have to see them damn it um, yeah. <laughs> this one I suppose there's a little bit more possibility there's the images are are important in, in some areas but um, I, it's not planned yet
1: okay alright great where can you get it
0: uh, you can get it currently from two places uh, my website which is jholbin.com okay uh, or, um, the ASC.com for the ASC store.
1: Okay. Great. Perfect. All right. What, what piece of advice do you have for young, uh, starting out? You've, it seems like you've, you've been, uh, in lots of different positions. You've been a gaffer, you've been an electrician, you've been a cinematographer, you've been a producer, you've been a director, you've been lots of different things, uh, a published author. Um, there's a lot of different people that listen to the podcast uh, and, and a lot of them fall within those categories. Um, what piece of advice do you have for young creatives starting out?
0: Go out and make things, but there's almost no excuse today not to, um, you know, I, I when I was a youngster, <laughs> I, uh, but you know, in the earlier part of my career uh, in order for us to shoot something, we had to get hold of a quarter of a million dollars worth of camera gear. Mm-hmm. And we had to get hold of a truck full of lighting and, and grip. And we had to get hold of film stock and then get a lab to develop that and then get a, a post house to telecity. I mean, the the barrier of entry to make something was massive. Yeah. Uh, and there were so many times early in my career that, you know, somebody like Probst would call me and be like, dude, I got a camera tonight. You got any it's short ends? Be like, oh yeah, I got some short ends. Okay, great. We're gonna shoot a spec. Awesome. And then boom, we'd be off and shoot a spec commercial and we'd be like, okay, now we gotta find hey, deluxe. You uh, uh, it for me? uh, and <laughs> just beg and borrow and steal. But today, everyone has a camera in their pocket. Yeah. And that should never be diminished like oh, it's an iPhone, it's not enough. No, 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 it's about telling stories. But getting out there and telling stories and, and sharing those stories and trying to get other people to see your work. So I mean, sure. I
1: mean the iPhones are great too, but even like I mean, the amount of owner ops right now with Alexas even, it's just out of control. True, absolutely you know, and it's just like I mean, you can you can almost borrow Alexas for no money at all. You know, it's just and it's like you're not shooting on film, so it doesn't matter. There's no cost to processing. You can go down to Best Buy and buy a hard drive for ninety nine dollars and you'd be off and running. So it's, I, yeah, you're right. The barrier to entry is non-existent. And then the truck doesn't exist anymore because all these cameras have low light sensitivity. So it's just, you know, you can, you can light, you can expose with this window and you're good to go, you know, a couple.
0: Yeah. And, yeah. you know, in, in the earlier days uh, we had to have massive tungstens or, or massive HMIs. Yeah. Uh, you know, if I wanted to do a daylight scene and I wanted to, to light through the window, I needed a 4K or, or an 8 k Sure. Then... Yeah you're not just talking about the light, you're talking about a generator and electrical distribution and, and all of these ancillary things that come to that. And now we have LEDs <clears throat> that have great output, that have great color fidelity, that are yeah. bicolor or tri-color or more. rgb sure. Exactly. Yeah. So there's so much more flexibility in a very small package that you can own yeah. inexpensively. And there are some companies putting out unbelievably inexpensive gear that is really good. Hmm. You talking in terms of lighting uh, or just across the board? Across the board, but yes, yeah, specifically lighting in, in that comment that I just made. Um, <clears throat> and I don't know why I'm resistant. I'm like, but it, uh, what Aperture is putting out uh, so with incredible. their Amaran line.
1: Yeah. Oh, even their Amaran line's amazing. Yeah, that 300C and the F22 and it's like all those, all those different lights that are coming out. Really
0: incredible. So we just did a... Um, a pretty major test uh, for the ASC. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah. <clears throat> I'm still alive. It's okay. Okay, good, great. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, for the ASC, an American cinematographer testing a 35 millimeter film on an LED wall volume. Oh, cool. And to do our color fidelity tests we utilized an Amaran fixture because that fixture had the highest SSI, the uh, spectral similarity index, which is the ASC Academy uh, system of any other fixture that was out there. So this incredibly me. cheap wow. fixture had the highest color fidelity possible. And, and that, that's just like brain melting.
1: It is brain melting. A $500 light that's okay. just blowing these $8,000 lights away. Yeah, no, that's, that's incredible. Now I, 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 um, I start I sold my sky panels, uh, to replace them, uh, with some vortexes, some cream source lights. And then I, I sold my M18s, uh, to replace them with 1200Ds from Aperture. And I'm, I'm hooked, man. These, these lights, and I have uh, a couple Amaran, the F22s, um, light mat style lights that yeah. just, they're full RGBW. They just look awesome. And they're, they're bright, they're useful, they're lightweight, I mean, I, I'm, I'm super sold. It's crazy. It's a crazy time.
0: Yeah. It's a, f- it's a flip f- <laughs> It's so wild. I can't it's even speak. Exactly. I don't lost <laughs> for any articulation whatsoever. It's a yeah. really exciting and fun time. And then to look it's at somebody like Greg Fraser, Yeah. Shooting the FX3s. creator. Well, Greg and Orrin, Sorry, I don't want to uh, forget Orin. Yeah, and
1: Orin Sofer, of course. Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, Shooting the creator on a $3,800 prosumer camera. Yeah. It's an 80 million dollar movie. I mean, that's I know. Yeah, we had we had Oren on
1: the podcast a couple of weeks a couple of months ago. Great. And um, yeah, just really incredible. It was before the movie came out. It was actually before they announced what the what cameras they shot on and I think they were keeping it under wraps. So we didn't we didn't have a chance to talk about it, but he's he said he's coming back to the podcast, so hopefully we can get him back on and, and talk all about it. But uh, he's a busy guy right now. He's a busy guy right now and 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 very deservedly. He's uh, very talented. But um, yeah, I know you're right. A 3800 hundred dollar camera shot an $80, $80 million dollar movie, and and it looks awesome.
0: It looks incredible. Yeah, it's it's the gear yeah. that you know it's probably three quarters to ninety percent of your audience is using. It's a Ronin RS two. Yeah, it's a, a totally. an FX three, uh, a single focal length of uh, you know a, an old nineteen sixties anamorphic. Yeah, uh, it's just a it's phenomenal what can be done. Absolutely. So I agree with you.
1: So, uh, yeah, just go out and create. Yeah. Perfect. Well, Hey Jay, thank you so much for, for taking your time and jumping on the podcast and, uh, and blessing us with your time and words of wisdom. Uh, appreciate it, man. Um, so where can people find out more about you? You you mentioned your, your website, jayholman.com. Yep.
0: jayholman.com. Uh, that and Instagram are the two places that I I spend most time. Uh, and Instagram is Holman too. Okay, Perfect. and anybody can reach out to me there, and, and I'm happy to, to answer any questions. Or, Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, Lars. Yeah. it pleasure.
1: Once again, a huge thank you to Jay Holbin for coming on to the podcast. Um, we've never met in, in person, but I can't wait to – I've seen him, of course, several times at different events uh, in town. I'm, I'm excited to uh, go shake a hand next time I see him. So thank you guys for sticking around. Uh, Of course, as always, share the podcast with your friends. Word of mouth is the best kind of growth. And uh, we're looking forward to some upcoming episodes. Got some really cool things in the works. See you soon.
0: Are you the proprietor of a business selling shaving kits, meal packs, audiobooks or anything else of the sort? Have you failed to tap the market of people who love hearing their favorite comedians talk about their boring lives? What's wrong with you? 57% of US consumers listen to podcasts every month. That's a lot of ears that could be hearing about your brand. Go to podbean.com/brands to learn how it do. That's p o d b e a n.com/brands and you could be the one talking instead of me.